Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast. Welcome everybody, welcome, welcome. Testing one, two, three. <laughs> We're back. Everything is good. It's very hot here and I'm clearly, um, my brain has, has gone into slight meltdown function. <laughs> Otherwise, here we are. Welcome to a brand new week where exciting things have happened. Most of them terrifying and terrible. Um, but we're not going to talk too much about that. Are we going to talk about that? Do you no. want to talk about the terrible things first? No, no. I don't want to talk about the okay. terrible things. Can I? T- did I tell you my Dorian Gray theory? No. Dorian Gray is the one that is doesn't th- age? Or is that the one with the weird painting? Which one is it? It's both. It's the same thing. It's exactly ah. that. Um, yeah, so actually, um, <laughs> I mentioned this theory to a friend the other day, and they were like, I was like, this is my, my best theory of 2021. And they were like, really? It's better than the whale fall theory? Because that one was pretty good. And I was like, no, no, you're right. Like, <laughs> the whale fall theory was, was better. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's the idea that Adele's Skyfall is actually written about a phenomenon when whales drift down to the bottom of the ocean as they die, and that phenomenon is called whale fall. And basically, I'm sure there's like an episode of ours that's actually titled Whale 4 because there was this period of my life, like a period that was coinciding with pretty heavy lockdown, I should probably mention, (laughs) where I just was like very intensely obsessed with the idea that Sky 4 was actually supposed to be about Whale 4. Anyway. But it's a concept that I I still, like from time to time it comes up in my head and I'm just like, oh yeah, that's so cool. Like I still love it so much like it's it's literally like it's really hard for you to come up with a better theory of anything like this is so good it brings pure joy that's the thing right yeah and like a lot of a lot of theories are like a little bit depressing like this dorian gray one um but like that one it just brings so much pure joy to me the dorian gray theory is just that um so yeah in in the picture of dorian gray i guess it's oscar wilde originally is oscar wilde um Somebody's like screaming at me. Also, my mother is screaming at me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not a bad thing. Like, yeah, it's a squad. Um, so yeah, he's like this this young hot person, um, but he's like horrible. But he never ages, and he never stops looking like beauteous and angelic to the point where like he's doing all these really horrible things. And like realistically, I think some of the horrible things he's doing is like just having sex. But there's also like some murder there as well. As well, like there's some sources like quite quite nasty <laughs> going on. Um, but he looks so angelic that nobody can believe that he's a horrible person and he never really ages and he always looks angelic, but he has in his attic, like a, a, a painting of himself and that painting is taking on all the ravages of like, not only his age, but also of his sins. So like, it's becoming this horrible thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And my, my only theory is like that Jeff Bezos's Amazon is somehow like set up like with the Amazon, the forest in this kind of like screwed up relationship where like the the worst, like like Jeff Bezos just gets richer and richer and richer and like the Amazon is just taking all the for him. Like it's just like it's on fire because he is getting richer and I mean, he's not getting prettier, but you know, like he like... No, he, d- he, he did. Like have you seen like there's some like before and after pictures from like a while ago and he definitely looked like much more than that like a nerd and now he's looking like really like a tough guy so he's also getting more attractive i would say like it's it's pretty much dorian gray i mean that's that's your choice he's not he's not my taste in man but that's you know each to their own and i don't want to like go against any the way anybody looks so much like whatever if it's working for him that's fine but like this is my dorian gray theory that i have set up um 
I mean, and that was that was one of the devastating things of the last couple of weeks. Like, there was this um, paper that was showing that the Amazon, at least parts of the Amazon, are now like emitting carbon, and like they're trees. Like, <laughs> yeah, but Tegan, is, I can't help but and I know feel, it's a bit more complicated than that. I but, can't help but feel inspired by the Dick Rocket, like. Gave me so much inspiration and joy so that like no matter what happens to the world, I'm just so glad that a couple of billionaires went to space this week. Um, it's really inspiring to know that if you come from like a rich family and exploit a lot of people, you can achieve anything like going to space. I mean, yeah, that has been the joy is like all of the people making all of the penis jokes, like all of the penis jokes about the rocket. I also saw a... Um, change.org like genuine change.org petition that was do not allow Jeff Bezos to return to earth and like 180,000 people had signed this petition to just like keep him out there and then I also saw something about how um, Mackenzie Scott's that's like Jeff Bezos's ex-wife who like got a lot of money um, and also like earned that money in fairness it's not like she just like won it Um, but when they divorced and she started like actually donating her money properly and she's been donating it to like colleges in the the US that are often overlooked. Um, and these are like often like historically black universities, but like the less like old, high prestigious universities that already have money. She's like giving like twenty million or fifty million at a time to these colleges and like actually spending her money on good things. And then like they had like a picture of what she's doing and him with his penis rocket side by side and Somebody tweeted that it's like proving that girls go to college to get more knowledge and boys go to Jupiter to get more stupider. And it was just like, <laughs> like this is like a thing we would say as, you know, five, six year olds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> My favorite thing like, yeah. that I read about his ex-wife is that like, imagine getting a divorce, getting like a lot of cash out of it, um, rightfully so. And then your ex-husband leaves the planet. Like how much better can it be? Like... Um, unfortunately, you returned. Well, the thing, no, the problem with that, yeah, the problem with that for me is that like part of what's so upsetting about what they're doing is like they've 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 all these billionaires have made these choices to go to space, and it's upsetting generally, but it's particularly upsetting because they're not reading the room, and like part of that is like the climate crisis and how awful everything is. But part of that is also the fact that we're coming out of COVID. We're still in COVID. I mean, we're not even coming out yet. And so many people are suffering so badly in terms of like lives lost, but also livelihoods lost and like really suffering. Like, and in the US also, like, so it's this like not reading the room thing. So, yes, you can make this comment about like he's like, he, he, her ex husband really left the, the planet. But I bet you there was some dick in that rocket who's like, oh, we're really socially distancing, aren't we? We're like the best kind of humans because we're like going all the like. I bet you there was those like, that's the energy (laughs) I remember, like imagining that like Uh, small dick energy in that big dick rocket where they're all making these like awful privileged jokes about how amazing they are. And I'm just like... Mm-hmm. Like this thing where the eighteen-year-old got got the ticket because somebody already paid like what twenty million for it, and then had like a scheduling conflict, and you're like, okay, eighteen-year-old, but the eighteen-year-old was also like some wealthy, yeah, it's... special child. Like it wasn't like a random eighteen-year-old; it was like, yeah, one of the elite. You know, I just oh, yeah, yeah. I just 
my my hope is that at one point like Austin Powers will come from a time machine because there's been comparisons between like uh, Doctor Evil and his rocket and Jeff Bezos and his rocket. It's pretty much the same thing. Yeah. So we just need Austin Powers to come and save us all. Like that's not the hero that we deserve, but the hero that we need or whatever it is. No, not the hero we need, the hero we deserve. It's Austin Powers to rid us of Doctor Evil. Um which is as like a connoisseur yeah. of the Austin Powers movies, I can say like uh, Doctor Evil even is like in the movie he's not the head of Amazon but of Starbucks, but it's like very similar. Is yeah, <laughs> like there's one storyline where like because like they do time travel and then his number two took over the business and then invested in Starbucks and they are like in in Seattle as their headquarters and they got in, in filthy rich through starbucks and that's like the storyline and that's pretty fitting you know way too much about this to be honest i've seen these movies so many times i love them but yeah uh anyway i'm i'm not saying um just to end up with my amazon amazon dorian gray thing like i'm gonna get in trouble for this because i i don't really remember how the book goes i swear i have read it but i couldn't even remember who it was by so like i haven't even read god it. god knows what the plot is in my memory it burns with like the picture it ends with the picture burning like the portrait being burned and like i'm just gonna leave that idea <laughs> right there <laughs> let's set the world on fire <laughs> and use the coals <laughs> to eat the rich <laughs> thoughts and opinions of my own <laughs> and mine i don't actually condone <laughs> setting things on fire no. not literal fire <laughs> and let's not eat any actual people at least not right now yeah uh, shall we talk about plants for a little bit? My favorite plant. Yeah, so it's my turn today and I want to talk about a plant that is called the Remarkable Goat's Beard. <laughs> so... <laughs> I think that's a really cool name, and I think that's pretty much enough to justify the reason that I want to talk about this plant, but there are some other cool things going on here, so you're going to have to give me a moment. So the Remarkable Goat's Beard is a plant that is belonging to the asterid family. It's kind of a sunflower family, and if you look at this plant, it looks like a sunflower with kind of a smaller center. It looks like a big dandelion, actually, but with sort of a darker, more sunflowery center. Um... And the sepals kind of spike out outside the, the petal length. And actually, when it when it finishes flowering, it does become kind of dandelion-esque, I believe. Um, it sort of looks like a a big um, dandelion. But it's the the species is Tragopogon um, mirus, if you guys want to look it up. And oh, by the way, I said dandelion, but this one is actually kind of pink-colored. So um, not a full dandelion, but in that kind of... You've got the idea, right? And asteroids are these like radial symmetrical um, flowers. Mm-hmm. So um, this is is tar- Tragopogon, sorry, Tragopogon mirus, um, and it belongs to the Tragopogon genus. And this genus is really interesting. Um, they're just like fairly ordinary looking plants. Um, the common name is, apart from goat's beard, is salsify, which sounds like a kind of harry potter thing to me like salsify it's when you turn <laughs> it's like when you turn salsa, i guess you, you, you turn things into a salsa for your food and it's just like salsify and then yeah 
It's either it's either like dancey music or it's source. These are the two options that are coming from from that one. I think it would be like this like Wingardium Livios. Like it depends on how you pronounce it and like you're supposed to like turn on some funky music, but if you do it wrong you just like get like <laughs> source pouring from the end of your wand. Like that's the In German it's called That's Hafer what I'm Wurz. imagining. Yes. Um <laughs> and that is because the Wurz is edible, I guess. Um the root is is edible, so so okay. I can tell you the answer. Yes, the root is edible. Um, another name for one of the the species, specifically Trigopogon porifolius, um, is like the oyster plant because apparently the the roots of them, which you can eat, are tasting like oysters. Which I I don't believe. I've tasted oysters. I can't imagine the root. Like oysters are salty and like fishy and oyster like i just can't imagine the root of any plant being there but anyway um so this plant is kind of it's it's an ornamental plant they're they're pretty sort of in the um the genus they also have like edible parts so you can eat the stems and the leaves and also the roots um they're not amazing like apparently you have to sort of eat the the leaves when the the, the plant is quite young otherwise they get like very tough and very bitter but you can cook them um and they're kind of fine and it's been like I, I don't think people are really eating it very often now but in the 18th century it was like somehow a popular um vegetable and it's it's got this like kind of classic historic links because Pliny the Elder described it at some point or at least mentioned it so it's you know it's got some like fame by association to one of the Plinys which is always cool good old Pliny um good old Pliny but it's it's kind of like parsnipy carroty as far as like what you're doing with it as you're eating the roots mostly. So after that, it's also got um, a latexy sort of stuff that comes from the roots, and that can be a chewing gum. And we're always fascinated by different like botanical chewing gums. I think we've done like ten on the podcast already. Like, oh, you can chew this. As it turns out, people just like chewing things, and we'll chew anything we can. To my complete lack of understanding for that, because I don't. I- not a really? fan of chewing gums. No, I don't want them in my mouth, and I don't want them in other people's mouths. I find them pretty horrific. Like, no, thank you. Um. So, uh, but I actually uh, do think you've once told me that, like, you think that it should be banned, right? I mean, like we've had this discussion about how in, in Singapore word, it's not but, like you can't. But like capital punishment is not completely out of the question for me, for chewing gum. <laughs> is it this? But you, the sound also annoys you, right? Like you the really sound hate annoys me, chewing. but also like people spit it on the ground and like sticks there, and it's like impossible to remove. So in the city, you have like all of these like black spots. Um, yeah, but mostly yeah, it's I the sound. Was ta- I was once explaining to my ex that that's what they are, and he's like, "No, that's like a different thing. That's dirt." I'm like, "Those are all chewing gum," and he just like would not believe me that like. Yeah all those disgusting black dots everywhere are like people spitting gum i mean in a world where they would actually like wrap up the gum and throw it in a trash bin i'd be more tolerable okay but, but i do that yeah but so I've... i can accept like <laughs> that other people find joy in in chewing gum but like in public like nah it's it's really not for me like i i don't enjoy it at all but like i i have misophonia like i i really hate these sort of like eating sounds they drive me insane and exactly that but luckily here i can like i can just mute you um so 
I found that I really enjoyed um, with the coronavirus that if you chew gum while wearing your mask, the next time you put the mask on, the, the mask will smell a bit like mint. <laughs> That's pleasant. Because using... otherwise it smells like stale breath. <laughs> when I'm using my mask, like mostly for apart from like protecting me and my surroundings, um, is that I can mouth insults at people that I really can't stand without them <laughs> hopefully realizing that. Like I just have to be sure that I really just mouth it I and not say it. Um, but, but yeah, like I'm taking, I'm doing this driving school now, and there's like a guy who has to fill every second of silence with like a stupid comment that tries to be funny but is really... the guy the instructor no no like the instructor also like we they, they change so the different driving teachers like different instructors they rotate and one of them also makes like stupid jokes and can tell that like every time he has this lesson at this point he makes this joke so they're completely you know you won't pass the class if you don't laugh at his jokes right i mean like, luckily they're not the ones Some... they're not the ones take like taking the exam so um there's like an external guy um okay but there's like this 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 other guy and so whenever he's talking i'm just behind my mouth i'm just like shut up shut up shut up shut up shut up because um that sounds healthy he's it's i I try to be nice for a long time but i'm still nice like i'm still nice to the outside but with behind my mask i'm like a very toxic bad person because um i was listening to a podcast this morning where they were discussing like somebody who always seemed nice and they're like is this person actually like a jerk underneath the niceness? Like they always appear nice, but are they actually a jerk? And then the other person was arguing, well, if they always appear nice at one point, they have just become nice. Like if everybody around them thinks they're nice and like doesn't know they're a jerk and they're like acting nice so often that they're hiding their true jerkiness, well, then they've become nice because niceness is the perception from other people anyway. So yeah. So I'm nice. Maybe you're nice. <laughs> I'm nice. As long as you don't remove my mask. I'm just like like Bane. You can remove the mask and bad things happen. Okay, you know what else is nice? It's goat's beard. <laughs> Let's get back to <laughs> something vaguely resembling a plant podcast. Um, so... <laughs> Trago Pogan as a genus is quite cool. Um, But the coolest thing about them is that they were introduced into North America and since then have spread all over the North of America. And generally, that's not a great thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So they originate in um, Europe and Asia and then they got introduced into North America, also into Australia. I'm slightly less happy about that. Um, Double standards. I'm calling it double standards. (laughs) Yeah, my island should be protected. Um, (laughs) But... Okay, so the, the, obviously I'm not super into invasive species, especially if not, not if they're damaging. But the really cool thing about this is that they were only brought to North America at a certain time. And since they've been brought there, two new species have just popped on up. Mm-hmm. So they diverged or what? No. There was three species introduced to North America. And within North America, their ranges overlapped. I'm assuming their ranges didn't overlap in their original habitats um, because like the different eco, the, mm-hmm. the environments. And because of that, they formed hybrids. Ah, okay. So cool. Um, there's the the one I was talking about, the remarkable goat's beard, which is a Tragopogon mirus, is a hybrid between T. dubius and T. porifolius. And then, and porifolius is that one that's like, edible and you know has the cool chewing gum and stuff and there's another one called tregopogon micellus 
And that is a hybrid of Dubious again, um, but then a different one, the third one called Pretensus. Um, and this is really cool because they've they've only hybridized really recently. So these are new species that are polyploids, which means they have the genomes of each of the two parents um, combined together. That's now become like one genome, but with like extra like information from both of the parents. Um, and it's only happened like in very recent years. So because of that, people are studying how t- polyploids form. But not just how they form, but how they then progress. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so these there's these two new polyploids, and they've only been around for less than a hundred years. It's about ninety years. Um, and when when you get polyploids, you have like all the genes from mom and all the genes from dad, and these are completely different species. But that means that like the new the new polyploid species, it basically has duplicates of everything, right? It's got more copies of every gene. That it mm-hmm. needs to have, and over time there can be reshuffling. Things can get moved around. Sometimes genomes just like turf out genes. Like they're like we don't we don't need all these different genes. And just to keep in mind that like this is not just the the normal thing in like a human where we have like one copy from our mother and one from our father. It's like they have two from this one ancestral species and two from the other so they've basically got got four copies of everything and they're like slightly different but there's like four copies of of each sort of gene with one function Mm -hmm. which can be too much um so over time with polyploids you see these like shifting and and rearranging and silencing genes um getting rid of them you know changing how they're regulated turning some things up and turning some things down depending on like what works what's compatible so these new species that have been formed, these two new hybrids, um, are now being used as a way to study not just the polyploidization, which we sort of know about, but then what happens afterwards, like how that then settles. And it, it's it's like really unstable. It's like you've got too much information in there often, like there's just too many genes and that can be like not a stable state for those hybrids to have. So they can sort of like move around from multiple generations until they sort of settle into something that's that's more stable and then that can sort of hopefully like hold on and, and be there. And so this is like really interesting just from a genetic point of view, but it's also quite important to us because as we've mentioned before, many of the crop species um, that we have, um, things like wheat, they are also polyploid. Um, wheat actually has like three different ancestors. So it's a hexaploid, um, means six as opposed to a tetraploid which is four which would be these guys with having four copies of everything so it's like it's very interesting from a basic biology point of view but it's also got these kind of understandings um from crops and you know if we want to start making new species ourselves by breeding combining two different like species that can make a polyploid but it's also for for an evolutionary perspective, it's not only sort of this unstable state, but also a chance to mix things up because suddenly you have all of this like extra bases hanging around, and by silencing some genes, it gives you the opportunity to, to like wiggle around with them like passively, but like change them a little bit, and then at one point they might get reactivated, but with like modified um sequences and that can mm-hmm. give like new functions or change functions like enzymes that are a little bit more heat resistant for example these are like 
having extra genetic material yeah. also is an opportunity for a plant on an evolutionary scale to try out new things and i'm like it all sounds very Absolutely. active like it's like a very passive process of course but um that's why these polyploids are so interesting and also like on an evolutionary time scale they happened very often and then sometimes like they regressed again to something that doesn't look like a polyploid that like dropped a lot of the extra copies but still mixed genes up to a point that they have new functions on new species and so on so it's yeah it's a really interesting thing to sort of see happening live in front of your eyes in the natural environment yeah. and not in like a breeding setting yeah absolutely you're watching like gene evolution happening like in real time basically um which is really amazing Anyway, um, I want to mention that I actually came across um, these these species be based on a poster that was put on Twitter um, by Casey Khan Pham. They sort of put a teaser for the poster and then after there was a lot of interest, they put um, a link to the full poster and they were attending the Botany 2021 conference that has been this last week. And it's just... You should really all go and look for this. We'll put a, a link to the tweet in the show notes. But it's just the best example of a poster I've seen in a long time. It's something that we, we often discuss as um, like science communicators. I'm really not very good at the visual stuff, but to be able to show scientific data in the way that it's done here is just really, really incredibly impressive. And then I was like looking at the poster and I, I've actually heard about these species before. I think I've been to a talk by um, Doug Solstice, um, who is like the, the lead author or the, the, the senior author on um, this work. But yeah, really big shout out goes to Casey Pham. Um, their Twitter handle is at Casey K Pham. Pham is spelled P-H-A-M and Casey is K-A-S-E-Y. So Casey K Pham. But again, also that will be linked in, in the show notes. Diversity in the class. Science. Uh, this week, it's me, and I want to talk... Oh, wait, I have something in my eye, and now I can't read. Um, I'm, I want to talk about Dr. Bethany Nichols. Um, we talked about her in the past um, on a, in, in a different uh, context that's slightly related, but uh, I happened to find her... Uh, um, like an interview with her today for, uh, on a John Inn Center where she where she's working, um, and I read that and it really resonated with me. I really enjoyed reading that interview um, uh, that she gave, and that's why I thought it's it's I, I wanted to to pick her for this segment, and I want to encourage you all to read it because I found it very like delightfully written. And it resonates with me because like many of the the points that like where she had to make decisions in her life um, are similar to when I had to make decisions. So she wanted to be a scientist from a very early uh, age, but quickly realized, and she said like it involved an incident with a hamster that um, <laughs> she d couldn't be working with patients or customers uh, in the future. Um, and so or customers she, like, was yeah. the was the hamster particularly rude to her when it fed, when she fed it her meal or something? No, I mean she doesn't go into details there, but she says like it was. She quickly learned that like dealing with other people or animals is is not her thing, um, and therefore she then went into into science into research um, and specifically into plant research and uh, at one point she was asked like what she wants to do and uh, she was quoted as saying that her goal was to prove that plants are cool and that was her motivation in her research and i quite like that and then she went she she trained in computational biology at the imperial college in london 
and also did a PhD in uh, in computational plant science at Royal uh, Royal Holloway at the University of London. Um, so she's British, and in her thesis, she was looking at how plants um, adapt or like like um, be, change their behavior in terms of seed dispersal and seed dormancy. So depending on environmental conditions, plants might put seeds like like sort of program them to be dormant for longer so sort of to wait out bad conditions or to increase dispersal to like make sure you get away from a bad situation and she was um analyzing or like looking into what triggered that um and how how that worked and she says like with that she could um <laughs> uh, she could begin to prove her point that plants are in fact cool uh uh, but then again, similar to like also my own career is that like after doing the research um, or during uh, doing during the research phase, she started doing science communication for the John Inn Center and the Institute of Cancer Research in the UK, uh, and through that and got really into science communication, blogging, um, working like as a job, uh, doing like social media and blog posts for research institutes. Um, Unlike me, she today works again as a as a researcher, but she also started um, the blog Fronts with Benefits, and this is what I believe we talked about in the past. It's a really cool mm -hmm. blog, also YouTube channel um, where you can like learn more about plants, like um, from a uh, sort of botany point of view. Um, and it's really it's really charming. It's really interesting. Um, and there's one like notable quote that I, I took from this interview that I wanted to mention here where she says like I was supposed to be moving to Australia but had my visa postponed so I moved in with my sister and brother-in-law in Devon which isn't anything like Australia but still very nice um, and uh, so that gives you an idea of sort of she has like a, a very charming tone of describing the things mm. that she cares about and I quite enjoyed reading that and, and, and I enjoy reading the blog and um, also on on YouTube I saw a video where she showed like different like science experiments you can do with kids in the garden and I really like that as well so she sort she's of quite active on in terms well. of yeah she's also very active on Twitter um, just like it's generally a cool person to follow and, and learn more about um, and see like a different aspect of, of of the plant world because like i mean we we in plants to be pets we give like a very complete view of the plant world but sometimes by accident we have a blind spot somewhere and it's good that other plant bloggers are sort of no, helping what was that? to complete that was the picture awkward. <laughs> what was no, i'm just saying like no no look at other plant bloggers um, oh, they're, they're really point. cool that was my point i was i tried to be ironic about it um no, obviously we like we talk so much about different aspects other than than plants or very molecular point of view, and I always enjoy um, reading stuff from people who have more like botany driven interest in plants because they, yeah, it's just a different point of view, and that's always good to see it from a different point of view than your own. Let's talk 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 about bias 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 also just my favorite song i made your play that three times because i'm not organized but it's also it's it's my favorite of our our themes um i'm talking about something which i'm actually now that it's coming up i'm not certain that i haven't talked about it before i think i maybe mentioned it in parsing before but i don't think like it's 
fully come up. Um, and it's a bit of an older one. It's it's a news article that came out in Nature in 2019. I mean, it was the end of 2019, November. But um, whew, that's that's going back before, I mean, before the current year. times, isn't it? I mean, that's just hmm? last year, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> we're ignoring the year that was not. That was just last year. Um, <laughs> and the the title of the piece is Science Funders Gamble on Grant Lotteries. And I think maybe you can already guess what the story is about. Based on that, Yarm? I mean, false perception of odds? No. When you're gambling, you f- think you are going to win, but you just lose every time? Nope. Then I don't know, like, but what what is like the gambling on grant proposals? Yeah, so it's actually sort of a way to correct bias. It's not about bias itself, and it's the idea that some funding agencies are awarding grants based in part on random selection. So, um, the lottery is literally, you know, you put your ball into the little machine, you roll it around, and it's like, okay, now Yarm is the one who gets the funding. And it's not completely insane. Um, the idea, f- from what I understand, is not that everything is all based on complete chance. Like there's a sh- there's a shortlist made first, um, but then after that, like after a certain point, so they sort of like put good ideas in there. And I think they also. Um, Maybe it was actually a different um, similar system, which is also using lottery. They're, they're sort of separating the really bad ones and they're removing them and then they're separating the really good ones and they, they're like already awarding the money to them. But then there's a kind of chunk of things in the middle, which are like not bad ideas, but sort of like fine. Um, and they're saying that like, well, there's a problem where it's it's quite hard to evaluate that or to at least separate them from each other. And then that's where like a lot of bias comes in as well. So like, obviously, if there's one about monkeys and one about plants, like Yoram as a plant scientist might choose the one about monkeys because he hates plants. I don't know. Like, he would choose the plant one because um, <laughs> it's in his field. We've already talked um, a couple of weeks ago about how there's this tendency to... Um, award money based on where people come from, like if they come from like certain institutes or certain countries. Um, so, yeah, there's a few different places that do this. Um, the University of Wellington, this is in New Zealand, was one of the examples. Um, there was sort of discussion of this at least at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. Um, and that's where they were discussing this idea of like, uh, you know, it's hard to separate those kind of meaty, chunky curve ones, which are all quite good. Um, yeah, and then the Swiss National Foundation has also been experimenting um, in the instance of help, helping decide um, postdoctoral fellowships that go to early career scientists as well. Um, and apparently, like Volkswagen, the Volkswagen Foundation. <laughs> Also, it has like something called experiment exclamation mark grants and it uses lotteries to allocate some of the, the funding for that. So yeah, as I said, it's not like an entirely random um, thing. There's like a minimum standard um, usually. And then after that, there's sort of this, this selection process, at least that's kind of the New Zealand system. So yeah, what do you think, Yoram? So yeah, at, at, on first glance, I'm like, oh, well, this seems unfair. Like you put all of the work into your grant proposal and then it's just she luck that decides. But in the end, there's more proposals than there is times they will award the money. And if you don't have any sort of sort of 
chance-based system, then you have internal biases or other sort of random events that don't seem random, where somebody has just like a good day looking at your proposal, and for some reason it resonates with them and they give you higher marks, um, but it's not something that has like any sort of logical explanation behind it, why this one gets the money over something else that doesn't get the money. So um, I like the idea. And I also like it because uh, if you imagine that uh, you, your proposal is rejected, you feel like you just didn't make the cut because you're not good enough. But if it gets rejected because you just didn't, like, were unlucky, you can't be really be as mad. Like, if if it's chance that's against you, then it's not like personal lack of skill. You just were out of luck in this case. And that's, I think, less demotivating. Like, you're not angry for picking the but wrong... But wouldn't you be more... Wouldn't you be more mad if you thought you had, like the brilliant idea and you're like well mine was the genius idea but they gave it to some random person who had a way less good idea than me like a useless idea they want to put like you know noses on mice now that mice have already had ears attached to them and they got it because of this like luck of the draw thing like that would be more annoying surely you have to believe that or trust that they they actually put things that are on equal standing in the pot they don't put like the the bad ideas together with like the the okay ideas and then sometimes a bad idea gets the money and then a good idea or okay idea doesn't get any money but i i don't know i personally would find it less devastating to know that my application was not rejected because it was it lacked quality but rather to hear like it was good enough but i was i just unlucky with the draw i think for my own mental uh mental well-being that would be better than yeah sort of getting a certificate of not being good enough which is a rejection based on like if they tell you it's purely qualities but how would you get better if you were not getting like you know if you do something and they you're not good enough and they say here's why you're not good enough then the next time you'd improve you get like this practice of grant writing and you could do better next time you could develop your ideas but you could also develop your skills how would that work i mean you were already good enough to make to to get into the pot so I don't know, like... I do I did just want to, like, caveat here that I was talking while rereading the article because I read it, like, a week ago and then I immediately forgot it. So my interpretation of, like, first taking off, like, the best ones and the worst ones and then sort of, like, only using it to choose that, that meaty chunk, that's sort of a discussion, but that doesn't seem to be necessarily what's happening. I think mm. the situation in New Zealand is that they're... Um, they're screening them to meet a minimum standard, but um, that's kind of the main screen. It's just like throwing out the, the crappy, you know, not standard ones. And one of the arguments is that because it's just a minimum standard, you're not writing this long grant. You're just kind of writing, you know, the idea on a bit of paper. It's not really the same mm-hmm. as the the traditional grant writing where you really have to justify your ideas and, and stuff like that. I mean, I've been in a place where it's, it wasn't about grant money, but it was about like deciding who gets to be on a big stage to talk about the stuff that they care about and um, who doesn't get that opportunity. And in these decision-making processes, like sometimes you just have things that are like very different, but none of them is like from the proposal objectively worse, but you only have spot for one of the two. Mm-hmm. And in that case, like like we like if you organize like a meeting or a conference or something and you can look at the others and be like what fits better in like do we have any like dupli- duplication do we more go for like diverse topics or group stuff together so you have sort of additional things that the, the proposal writer has no influence over um 
but I could see how if you if you have a bunch of them and they are you would say like if any of them would get it, I would think it's deserved, but I can only give it to one or two of them. I find um, that like a draw is 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 fi fair enough. Like of course, like, it depends like how well you do the selection before. Like if you really just sort of look for all the ones that fulfill all the technical requirements, and then you have a draw, then you will ha still have like a qualitative difference between them. And then I would I, like I could see myself be mad about like having a good idea, and then I see somebody who does something that I find incredibly stupid, but they fulfilled the technical requirements and were lucky, and then suddenly they get yeah, the money. I think, I think that that Tegan method that I half made up when I was reading that out was actually what I would do. Like, first, like, get rid of the ones that don't meet the requirements, then, like, find the ones that are clearly amazing and put them through, mm -hmm. and then have a, a chunk of the money is, like... So, like, other... You're quite pro it. Interestingly, you're pro because you said you would feel less bad if you lost, not because, you know, just because of chance. The argument here is that it would actually make you more humble if you lost for chance because it would make you realize that some things are out of your control and that would make you realize, you know, you're not a god emperor. Um, but some, some other arguments for why it could be a good idea is, like, we've already mentioned a lot of the biases that are happening. And, I mean, what we haven't sort of discussed is the fact that Writing grants in itself is quite a skill um, and you can gain that skill with age, which means that people who are, you know, older, more progressed in their career are more likely to get that skill, um, which means that the money keeps going back to the same people. Like once you've got the first money, it gets, you know, easier and easier because you get like through the system. It makes it very hard for people to enter. And that applies not just based on age, but also on privilege. Um, so like training for writing this stuff is much more available, you know, in rich institutions. And also like rich institutions often have people whose entire job is to fix grants, like not like fix them as in like fixing racehorses, but like they make sure that, all of the criteria are filled, that it's written in a nice way. You know, they might like fix the, the English or the grammar, um, but also that, you know, the formatting is, and it looks lovely. And like, like this is, this can be somebody's entire job at like a wealthy institution, which is not as likely to happen at something which doesn't have as, as many resources. Mm -hmm. um, on top of that, like when people are judging the grants, there's criteria which you use and it's really hard for those to be objective. So like we've talked about this before, but like often in science you can be judged on how mobile you were, how often you move from country to country. And like that's much easier if you're born in a European country, like, you know, you're born in Germany, just nip over to France. That's like two hours drive or like an hour's drive. Like, but that is sort of seen as really good. Whereas like somebody who's born in like, let's say Chile, like, there might be less opportunities, there might be less resources in the countries nearby. It's also further to go from Chile to like any country compared to France and Germany. Um, like coming to Europe, like these kind mm -hmm. of things. Um, I'm saying Chile because I have like lots of friends from there who came to Germany. Um, there's also like gender issues there. Um, but then also even the criteria of like what's often considered as, as like a, a good criteria, like a like completely fine criteria is to have past publications and that can be a good thing because it's like, well, if you're proving that that scientist has already shown, like demonstrated an ability to do really good science, it does make some sense to put more eggs in his or her basket. Like, you know, Yoram can publish really great things, has done so four or five times in the past. Why not trust Yoram with more money? But again, 
we know there's a bias in first getting those publications, but also that's selecting for older people. And it's not selecting for the idea. It's selecting for Yoram as opposed to the scientific idea. And depending on how you weight that, like if Yoram has a really terrible idea or even just a mediocre idea, should he get the money over somebody else who's up and coming but has like a brilliant idea and depending on the weighting he he might get that money right so there's there there are arguments for having a more lottery based system as well and i think that like a lot of it is already by chance now but we hide it behind objective factors like the the composition of the panel of experts that decide on a grant proposal that can be lucky or unlucky. There might be some people that you ran into into conference that don't like you. They saw your talk and they hated it. And suddenly they're looking at your grant proposal and they find other, like even subconsciously, they find reasons to reject it. And that's just bad luck. Yeah, and, this is this is blurring the, the chance and bias lines, yeah, I would say. By, but yeah. by mm-hmm. straight up setting it up to be ch- chance-based to some extent, you eliminate all of the sort of things where we pretend that it's not chance, but it totally is chance that influences um, your success rate there. Uh, and yeah, like, of course, you have to set it up in a clever way. And I mean, you you, you, you presented a good way to do it. I, I think that that would work well. And that would not be less fair than what we already have. It wouldn't be perfectly fair. Like, ideally, you want to, like, the best quality. You, you want to rank them all objectively by quality and then just give, like, the top 20 the grant money. But you can't figure out this rating. Like, this ranking you 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 can't put them in a confident order um because of all the things that you said so that's why um to me that's that sounds like a a good system to to overcome this to some extent i mean you could also imagine like half of the grant money goes by chance and the other half is given away by sort of being the best like proposal uh and lots and lots of variations of that um to yeah, to 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 spread the money, but I mean, in the end, what we need is like more funding for researchers, more permanently, and all of that. But until we have that, I think a chance-based system for grant money is not the worst idea. Like, it's I think it could be an actual improvement. At least I would like to see it tried out more mm-hmm. often. They they also mentioned in the article, by the way, that you could also tweak the the lottery, like the ability to enter the lottery or how that works, to also try to like favorably weight people who are already underrepresented or don't come from like wealthy institution backgrounds and stuff like that so there's like also you can say well like this person has always already these benefits but you know what if the lottery is just for early career researchers or just from people from the global south or you know one of these other criteria where again you've still got like a threshold but like that that's maybe something yeah like extra funding don't know um yeah interesting idea definitely I think it's it's a thing with like a lot of the the biases. Like we know there's bias, but how to get to fix them is is really a question. And I'm not convinced by this. Um, I think you're more convinced than I am. I'm like mm, I can see some benefits, but I can see some like real problems. Um, but yeah, that's that, that's always a problem we have. Like we know there are biases, but fixing the biases can often be not super straightforward. I think as well. Mm-hmm. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun I have something that I'm generally really excited about. Um, that's about machine learning. And we talked about machine learning in the past, often in a sort of critical context, right? Like machine learning mm. is this thing where you 
um, give a computer a lot of data and then the computer looks for patterns in there. And depending on what kind of data you give it, the computer learns different things. And very often, we talked about this in the context of bias, like if you train a computer on hiring people based on your past hires, all of the internal bias that you have when hiring before, now the machine does the same bias again, but now you think, oh, the machine, it's objective, it's good, um, and it's problematic. So very often we're like, oh, machine learning, a little bit overhyped, a little bit problematic, and I still think that whenever it comes to personal sort of um, destiny, whenever you decide about people, but where I think it's generally just so so really, really amazing is when you do this for proteins, because proteins don't have feelings as far as we know and therefore it's not a big problem if you introduce biases there apart from like scientific biases of course biases are always bad but sorry we should long we introduction should ask <laughs> what we should ask peter von Leven. <laughs> yeah um we should um no long 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 story short is um there have been two new um systems being presented just just now and it's sort of in in not really back-to-back -back publications but very close to one another in science and nature um the software is called AlphaFold 2 and rosetta fold and these are two proteins um sequence um structure prediction tools and to explain that it's just like when you when you have a protein sequence it tells you like all the amino acids but in in real life these amino acids have interactions to one another and that shapes the protein gives it its form and therefore also its function and fi finding that function usually involved um, making a crystal of the protein so prepare it in a very special way that in itself is a big challenge and then shoot x-rays at it and then from the x-rays they they form like they're scattered and they form a pattern and then you use very complicated math to calculate back what happened with the x-rays and then you can figure out the, the structure of the protein and yeah that's like phd projects on just like a single protein like years and years that you spend and when you want to do this for like bigger complexes where a couple of proteins sit together then it gets even more complicated to do this and it's always like a a, a massive thing if somebody finds like a new structure um, and so people try to do use computers to predict these structures and to some extent you can do that but because of the complexity you have to imagine if like a hundred uh, amino acids in a, in a protein and each am amino acid can be like 20 one of 20 different amino acids that have like different chances of interacting with others you just end up with like this massive range of, of probabilities of what the protein could look like and going through that with any sort of conventional computer program was really really hard so we we That's had predictions just to clarify, so because like the different amino acids have sort of different shapes and different sizes, and they also have like a different ability to like attract or repel other amino acids. They have charges, so they can be like plus or minus. So they have like all these properties, and it also then depends on like you know if there's five of the same thing in a row, that will you know then create a like a net positive. So like it can switch a region depending on not just the individuals, but like how they exist next to others um, around them. So if you imagine there's like 10 positives and in between there's one negative, well, that one negative is not really going to be a negative. He's basically swamped out by all the positives around him. And that's like a very simplified way of, mm -hmm. of saying it, but yeah, but it, just, right. it just gets infinitely complicated. Yeah. And so, Whenever we would use these prediction tools, we would always know that, look, this is just a computational prediction. It might be true, it might be close to the truth, or it might be far away. We don't, like, 
we need more experimental work to to figure this out and you end up again doing the crystal stuff and that's hard um but now with these two tools that are based on machine learning, they they looked in a simplified version. They sort of looked at a lot of solved sequences, like a lot of sort of structures that we know that in good confidence and the protein sequences that are related to that and then let the computer find patterns um, that explain why this forms. And this is like a very simplified um, uh, explanation because in reality they used like three different tracks in parallel that had like different ways of figuring out the structure and then they were like sort of bouncing between these tracks and getting better every time they bounced between these different ways of finding the, the structure but in the end now there's a web tool where you can just like look for any protein and there's a prediction for that based on the system and I did that for like two proteins that I w used to work on and it's just so exciting to see like a structure prediction for them. I mean, I, I have no idea at this point without experimental work if that holds true and I'm like too long out of the lab to to know if that's that's plausible. But you can just like go uh, to the AlphaFold protein structure database and look for any protein um, and then it does its best at trying to predict what the shape of it is. And if you know it interacts with other things, then this might help you to... Um, to see how they they come in contact to one another, how they work, um, what are the important bits, what are the less important bits of the protein. So it's just like, like I remember when I was working on these proteins, um, so often it was like, yeah, I just don't know what they look like and I don't know which end of it is the interesting end, which end of it does like the enzymatic function. So if I want to learn more about it, like... Like it's it's good to know where to start sort of mutating it and, and playing with it to learn more about its function. And this tool now, like these these two prediction tools, they seem to open up this entire world of very easy access to structures. And that means like very good starting points to do research and potentially find out more about the function of all of these proteins or how they interact, how they come together, how they do do stuff in the cell. Um so yeah. This is one example of machine learning where I'm just like really, really excited that it exists. And it actually made me think like I wish I would be in a lab right now and see like this come up and then use that for my project. Mm -hmm. um, which is for me, it's now too late, but I imagine so many other people will be really excited about this. Yeah, like we were pretty lucky to be like doing lab work in the time when like CRISPR-Cas9 suddenly became this huge thing. And it was like, wow, there's suddenly this tool that is just like eclipsing everything else. And like everybody knew it was going to be big. And then it was like a few years later, it was big. And it's really exciting when new methods or new tools sort of jump into mm -hmm. existence and sort of change everything. So maybe this is one of them. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I, I think uh, I'll, I'll link in the show notes to um, an article on ScienceMag that compares also the two tools, but I will also uh, link to the actual um, AlphaFold software. I think they launched today or something um, with sort of the publicly available interface um, be, be before you could only sort of use the code, but you have to run it on your own server or whatever. Um, but now you can actually just like type a protein name um, and if you're a researcher, I think that will come in really handy. But even if you're not, even if you just want to get an idea of what what do proteins look like, um, this could be interesting to just like play around a little bit and and yeah, just see what this this machine learning system thinks all of these proteins look like. 
Okay, I'm going to do one of the things where I say a method and you have to guess what I'm doing. This is not like okay. directly related to plants, um, but it was a really um, a really cool thing that came out this week. It's it's kind of exciting to me, and um, it could be applied to plants potentially. Well, there there's there's an application that sort of relates to plants, um, and it, it relates to you know molecular biology. So I think that's fine. Um, so. <laughs> You first have to go into the store and look around for a vacuum. And you want a certain type of vacuum. You want one mm-hmm. where it has, like, water in the... Um, like, it can have water oh, yeah. in the, the canister? What, what would that be called? In the, the barrel? Yeah, like, the, I, I think I've seen one of these ones. It's like they, they, they sort of clean the air. Like, the, the, the air that they blow out, it's went through water or something, right? So the... Mm-hmm. The dust gets trapped in the water, and what it blows out is just like clean air, something like that, right? Exactly. What you're the one you eventually decide on is called a Kercher DS five eight hundred, and that's a water vacuum, oh. and it has this okay. really high flow rate impinger. I don't know what an impinger is, but you do. You've made this choice, and the outer part <laughs> creates suction, and it's got this inner vortex chamber where the particles flow into, just. Really exciting. You then take this this vacuum cleaner, and you and your vacuum cleaner take a trip to the Copenhagen Zoo. It's in Denmark, mm-hmm. but it's okay. In this scenario, you're also Danish. And that's convenient because this is occurring during September and December of 2020. So we've got a little bit of lockdown happening, but you're wearing a mask and you're carrying your vacuum. And there's not a lot of people around anyway because of COVID. So you take your vacuum cleaner to the zoo. And when you get to the zoo, you fill up the chamber with milky water and you go into the hothouse and you just start vacuuming. <laughs> and that's what you do. You vacuum and you vacuum and you vacuum. The, 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 the hothouse, is that where like the tropical animals live? Yeah, I think so. And is it like insects or like mammals or birds that live there? I think it's Is butterflies. It like the, the, yeah, that's what I would imagine, like the butterfly house. Like, oh, you're just sucking actually, up all of called, the butterflies. It's called, it's a, called a rainforest house. Um, mm-hmm. And there are smaller vertebrates and other animals from the tropics, which sort of mm-hmm. roam around inside this rainforest or tropical house. And I'm, I'm vacuuming that, the air. I'm, I'm vacuuming the air, not the floor or... Yep, you're vacuuming the air. And then after that, you sort of take the water out and you filter the water and then you really thoroughly clean your vacuum cleaner because when you're doing cleaning, it's important not only that your cleaning instrument like is cleaning itself, but also that it's clean. It can't clean unless it's clean. So you get some 5% bleach and 70% ethanol, I think, in there. Or you do something. I think you put, no, you put a 5% bleach solution in that vortex chamber and... I guess spin that around a bit, vortex that (laughs) to really clean it out. And then you move on out of the rainforest tropical house and you go to a a nice area where there's two okapis. It's kind of like a small zebra, I think. And two (laughs) red doika. (laughs) Doika. Mm -hmm. And I do it again with my vacuum. It's like a kind of deer it's like an antelope a doiker i would say now vacuuming again vacuum vacuum Mm -hmm. vacuum 
And then you clean your vacuum, you filter the water. First you filter the water, then you clean the vacuum. And then you go out into the outside part of the zoo and just like wander around like a madman waving your vacuum in the air. <laughs> oh my, I imagine like, like clearly I want to get like some particles from the air. Um, the bleach, like I've, I've bleached things in the past when I wanted to get rid of DNA contamination or RNA contamination, like nucleic acids. Yeah, um, yep, yep, yep. I, I bleached them away. So I imagine that they tried to find like some traces of like DNA or RNA in the air. I just wonder what, what could the particles be where they want to complain the rainforest and sort of these, these savanna animals and then just like as a control going through the zoo. Um, I mean, airborne bacteria or like fungal spores is like stuff that i've also sampled in like my uni days um mm -hmm. with like similar devices um, but not in water i i don't really get why you would do that through water so and not just like you, blow it on a filter directly you are like exactly you're exactly on the point here um so yeah, as you said, like there's there's organisms or there's bits of organisms in the air. Um, you've mentioned like fungi, but also things like pollen. There's like stuff drifting around the air, and there's also DNA like moving in these cells in the air. And you were exactly on the point. They were vacuuming the air to see if they could collect DNA from an air sample. And the vacuum is just one of the methods they used. Um, they also had like different ways of filtering air. So I was using that one because I think it's the funniest. It's like a commercially mm -hmm. bought vacuum, but they also had sort of like a bit more sophisticated sort of um, air filtering suction systems to try and see if they could collect DNA from the air. And this is like a really interesting thing um, because we have this concept of environmental DNA already. Um, where you can take like a soil sample or like a lake sample, or, like a liquid sample, and you can just like look at all of the DNA, you know, because sequencing is getting so easy and so fast these days, you can sort of look at all of the DNA that's in these samples and that can tell you which organisms are in that water sample or, you know, moving around in that soil, even if you can't see them, even if like you can't pick up the entire organ, you can find traces of them. And now it's been shown that you can also do that by just collecting air. You can tell what might have been around there. So... This has just come out this week. Um, it's not published. It's not peer-reviewed yet. But there's two preprints from two independent research groups that shows that there is like detectable amounts of DNA in the air. Um, so there's a now a new environmental DNA, which is like air DNA. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, like there were some clues that this could happen before. You know, detecting microorganisms, bacteria, fungi, things like that, which are sort of gross and everywhere. Um, apparently somebody made a publication in PeerJ. So um, Elizabeth Clare is a molecular ecologist and um, they reported in PeerJ that um, within a lab, which had a lot of naked mole rats in it, they could detect eDNA. So this environmental DNA like of the mole rat in the air of the lab. Um, But now, like, doing it at the zoo, it's a bit more, you know, a, a wider environment. You've got more species there. Um, it's not, you know, so enclosed. It's not like in a lab situation. And they're doing it, like, both inside and outside, um, which I think is really, really impressive. Um, they consistently detected 49 species of animals from, like, vacuuming up the air effectively, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. And then there's another thing where um, 
it mentions at the bottom of the article. So I'm just reading a report on this in science that we'll link to, um, sort of like a, a press release, you think. Um, another group found that they could find traces of eDNA on like bark and leaves from pests that might have traveled at one like been around these bark and leaves at one point. So that's also like, so for forestry, for like all these diseases, which are really dangerous to, to trees and, and other like also fungal paths, things like that. Um, like being able to detect mm. their presence, even if you can't see them, is, is also really important. So yeah, I think it's just really, really cool. Yeah, it really is. Um, I I think I know why they like. I don't know if you said it. There was like a short cutout in in our connection, um, but I think they used the water because then the DNA is soluble in the water, and you can extract it from the water e more easily than. I know that in like in uni um we had these like trap devices for to find out the the bacteria in the air and you had just had a filter that bacteria couldn't travel through and you would just like suck air through that and the bacteria would get stuck on the filter and then you could grow them on petri dishes and then figure out what bacteria you have and how many um but then you're like you're relying on the fact that they're actually trapped on the filter because the filter is has the right size but with dna that doesn't work so you have to push it through water so that's actually like a really cool way and what made me i also well, I thought about is that with that you can find things like viruses in the air you're like if you have dna or rna viruses you might pick them up if if they are enough of them you might pick them up in the water where otherwise it might be really hard to to measure virus particles like to to identify virus particles in the air because you can't unlike like a bacterium you can't grow more of it once you trapped it to then analyze it like the virus doesn't work like that because it's not really alive so that without and really any knowledge about like the limits of this method i could imagine like anything that's like dna based um like some viruses could be potentially in the the sample of all of the DNA that you find in like a volume of air. I think um, like, yeah, your point about water is kind of correct, but I think they were doing that because they were trying to show, see if they could do it with like sort of commercially available thing. And then like that commercially available thing wouldn't have the right kind of filter that would, you know, collect that in, in a nice way. So that's why the water is helpful, but the, the, they used three different methods and the other two were sort of filter based. So they were sucking mm -hmm. things into like a fibrous particular filter in one case. Um, and then the second one had like a, a smaller filter that was like, <laughs> like mounted on this 3d printed housing. So they, they had like sort of more, um, yeah fiber based like they, they sort of tried three different methods so they, the, the third filter was like something that's usually used in air conditioning units i think um designed to capture airborne particulate they said so i think they were trying different things i, I don't know if there's a comment in um i can't see it obviously from the papers if there's a comment in the the methods about which of the three worked better but i think yeah yeah, really Kinda nice. Kind of cool, huh? So if you see somebody with a vacuum in the zoo, you know they're collecting air samples. Uh, I have a story that I found about an alga. Al uh, the Pleodorina starii is the first al alga or al of algae that has been uh, identified. It has three, uh, three dis uh, distinct sexes. Um And that's really exciting because, yeah, before that we, in, in algae we haven't found any species that has like three distinct sexes. So just to explain it a little bit, um, 
having more than than two sexes is not that uncommon like like the the dichotomy of male and female um is broken very very often in nature i mean um it's it, there's all of the like the, the the social implications of it as well like in humans but like having more than than these two sexes and having like things in between um, we find that quite often in nature like think about like for example herma uh, hermaphrodites so um uh, species like for example some snails that have the ability to turn either male or female or turn from like female to male or the other way so they they can exist in intermediate stages and then like sort of shift depending on the environment or internal factors into one direction or the other um uh, we talked also about some trees who do that in the past um i don't really remember what species of tree that was but there were some trees that depending on some environmental factors they could be, be like in the population have more female or more male trees and they could sort of transition between these these stages um um based on environmental factors so we we see that um, quite often to have this like hermaphrodite state. So this state that is undecided sort of, and then can switch into one or the other direction. Um, in, um, in algae, there's also a hermaphrodite um, species, but this algae, Pleodorina starii, um, is, has like a bisexual interface. Like it has like a, a in-between stage that's truly bisexual. Um, and that means it has at the same time female and male cells. So this alga, alga, uh, alga is growing in colonies. These have like 32 to or 64 cells. And the male, like if it if the colony is male, then they have like small sexually reproductive cells that are mobile. These are the male cells that can sort of travel to other colonies. And if they have female cells, then they have larger immobile cells that can sort of accept then the mobile male cell. But in this species, there's also colonies that have both. They have both the female cells and the male cells. Um, and it apparently is like a genetic genetic um, switch that plays a role in that. Um, and uh, the, it's exciting now for researchers because using this alga they can now study what happens on an evolutionary scale um in the transition from like a dioecious um uh, organism that has like distinct male and female um uh, individuals or um monoecious species that have have uh, only hermaphrodites that depending on the context can then switch to male or female um in such a um in such a uh, yeah system in such a sort of higher system um uh and in plants just to sort of end on that like uh I, i'm not like a complete expert on like plant anatomy but to my knowledge if if you have on a plant both individual female flowers and male flowers on the same plant you would also consider them um uh, bisexual plants and not hermaphrodites which is distinct from plants that have the female and the male bits within the same flower that can self um like self-pollinate like for example arabidopsis um you would not consider that a bisexual uh, organism as far as i understood the terminology in, in in this field which can sometimes be a little bit confusing because <laughs> you have all of these like different ways of describing it all but bottom line is they found a, found an algae now that has three distinct sexes uh, male female and bisexual 
Okay, so the final thing that I want to talk about is something that's very, very old and it's all sort of like come up in, in popular modern legend also quite a while ago, but I only heard about it myself um, the other day, a couple of days ago, and it's called The Tree That Owns Itself. Yoram, have you heard about The Tree That Owns Itself? Only very briefly. I think, I know there is a, there, somewhere there's a tree and somehow it has ownership of itself, but I don't really know a lot about it. That's basically the story so it's an oak tree actually apparently according to wikipedia there's two different trees that own themselves but i'm going to go with the the og tree which is in the state of ala no in the state of georgia sorry not alabama um the new one is in 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 alabama and basically it's an oak tree um and at some point in the distant past like in the 1800s somebody who was emotionally attached to this tree which is a nice thing they had they had cherished childhood memories of the tree decided that they wanted to protect it that it wasn't you know cut down or removed so they they wrote a deed in which they sort of bequeathed the ownership of the tree to itself and gave the tree this oak tree not only its own ownership but also gave it land within like eight feet which is like two and a half meters either side of the tree um and since then it sort of lived happily until around the 1900s when things started getting a bit like shady uh, not in the fun leafy way but like in that erosion happened at the base of the tree there was like a big ice storm the tree then got sick from the damage um so like basically you know ice and any, any sort of physical damage can make it easier for rot to, to get in like bugs and and fungi to get into the tree so that happened and although people tried to preserve it like by the early 1900s it was already on its way out um and like it took it took a long time but in the 1940s it sort of fell over um everybody knew it was going to collapse but it, it did collapse it died um and that was sad i guess but then people just put up the sun they took an acorn from that oak tree and put up the sun of the tree that owns itself which is now in the same spot that the tree was. And you can sort of see it, um, photos of it on the Wikipedia article. It's standing proudly with a little circle around it on its plot of land. I, I do think this is a lovely story. I do want to mention that the they're not really sure when the original deed was written. It was in like 1820s to 1830s. But it is worth mentioning that the 13th Amendment which was um, the official abolishment of slavery, only happened in the 1860s. So somebody thought trees should have rights before people, which is just insane and incredibly horrible. Um, But otherwise, it's kind of a, a cute story that somebody's like, hey, I love this tree so much, I want it to not die even when I'm gone, and I want it to be mm-hmm. Okay yeah yeah that part of it really is a is a lovely story this idea that nothing can happen to the tree and we treat it like a human being um and it's sort of a a a tie-in to the podcast episode that we recorded but haven't like i haven't edited yet it will come out sometimes later um for the plant book club where we talked about the hidden life of trees um by peter wohlleben uh that's also like not to really like sort of spoiler alert but like one of the last chapters talks about treating trees much more like living beings like we would treat animals or humans um instead of sort of like plants that are often considered more objects so um i'm actually surprised that peter wohlleben in this book didn't mention 
that some trees were actually <laughs> trees owning themselves, themselves uh, and and being sort of treated like like entities. So yeah, so so make sure to check out the new episode of the Plant Book Club whenever I actually finished editing it and we're we're publishing it. It might be a week from now, or a bit later, but anyway, I think it was a fun episode talking about the book. Um, now we're actually reading a book. If you want to do such a thing as to read along, we're reading Lessons from Plants from Beronda L. Montgomery, um, and I just like I I I got the book. Um, it's a cute little um, book talking about stuff we can learn from plants and i think this will be also a very fun episode so make sure to subscribe to the plant book club uh wherever you listen to podcasts and that's the end of the ad segment that i just <laughs> impromptu put in here and now let's talk a little bit uh about our final fact for today cat fact um, today's cat fact is a rat fact. Um, I found a paper that's called Neural Correlates of In-Group Bias of Pro-Sociality uh, Pro in Rats. Um, and yeah, the, the title makes it seem very complicated, but in fact, um, the finding is <laughs> that r rats help each other out, but only if the rat that they're helping belongs to the in-group. And in-group is sort of... Um, can have different definitions here. Um, so the experiment that they did is that they put like two rats together in a cage setup where you had one rat trapped in a smaller tube and the other rat having like a bigger cage around it. And the, ca the, the rat in the bigger cage had the possibility to open the tube. And then they measured at um, the, the responses of the rats and they found that the rats showed... Um, always uh they, they would always show empathy to the trapped rat but it would only help it and release it from this from this little like plexiglass tube um if they would consider it part of their own group and that could be like belonging sort of to, to the same type of rat or to the rat family um so um when they looked then at the brains of the rats they found that like the empathy center was always activated but only when also like a, the reward center was activated then they would actually help the uh the rat and um that has like of course some like consequences for like behavioral science you can understand like understand better what makes people be social and help one another but they also say um that's really interesting for us humans because many of the parts in the rat's brain are structured in similar ways to the way our brains are structured obviously you can't directly one-to-one -one translate what you see in a rat experiment to humans but we have very similar structures in our brains to the structures in a rat brain that are related to reward and empathy. And so they say, if you want to motivate people to help others who are suffering, it may be that you have to increase their feeling of belonging to the same group and group membership um, and work towards a common identity instead of just relying on empathy. So we as humans, probably, if we act like rats, um, if, it, if, if that, uh, that holds up, then... We do feel em em empathetic to other people's suffering, but we only decide to help when we feel that they belong to the same group as us. So that makes it even more important um, to be inclusive in a, in a sense of accepting that we all of us people, we belong to the same group. Like we are not like different distinct tribes because once we start thinking in this idea of like being separate groups then empathy doesn't help us 
anymore to the same extent um, because then we can see another group suffering and just be like, this is not our group. Like I sort of feel bad, but not bad enough to act on it. And I know mm-hmm. this is sort of extrapolated from a, a rat experiment and you have to be careful with those sort of these, these translations. But uh, in the article that um, uh, actually like we're linking to, to the, to the source, but I, the article that I read about it, um, they had a couple of the researchers talking about it that were involved with the study. And they said like, um, this could be interesting to use that as as cues for social interaction also in humans um, to increase cooperation and social interaction. So yeah, that's why rats only it, help it also makes each me, other. I mean, it's, it's kind of making me wonder about what empathy is as well a bit, right? Like, like if you're truly feeling empathy... You should have bad feelings and then like to remove the bad feelings should already be a positive reward, right? Like if your empathy is like, oh, I feel really sad for this rat who's stuck by fixing him, I can stop feeling sad. Then that should already be a positive reward. But it basically means that like... I don't know. How does that work? We're just like, mm, okay, I guess I'm a bit sad, but I'm not really sad. Maybe we're all just pretending that we're sad. Are the rats just <laughs> pretending they're sad? Maybe it's, it's, it's like less conscious. On... Maybe it's less conscious. Maybe you have like empathy they, is they like the mirroring like... of the feeling. So you can you can mirror the feeling of, um, oh, being trapped is bad. Like we would see um a trapped animal how in did a they cage. measure the empathy how did like what was the sign of empathy was that like based on they, brain stuff or was that based on like the, the rat f- looking sad so quoting from the article that i read that they used fiber photometry so they had like fibers implanted probably in in their brains and could do like um brain activity measurements based on like emitted light immunohistochemistry so that's like cutting up the brain and doing like antibody triggering for like after part of the brain calcium image imaging and other diagnostic tools um they found that all of the rats they started experienced empathy and respond to another rat's sign of distress so and are they sure that like they don't what they think is empathy isn't just like trying to look sad so that people think you're a nice rat I don't know if it works in such a comp- complex way. Like, I imagine, and they are like, I'm I'm a plant scientist, not an animal scientist, <laughs> but I imagine like empathy here is like, you you see similar parts of the brain lighting up to that you would see also in a trapped rat. So you can, the 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 free rat can imagine itself being in the trapped position, mm-hmm. but that's not enough to um, then also make a, a decision to help the rat it's just like oh you like like you look at like uh, um, a trapped animal in the zoo and you feel bad but you don't feel bad enough that you would actually try to to make a fuss and release the animal but if you would see a yeah, trapped but it's human also really hard to smuggle a giraffe out whereas like the rats could quite easily free their f- non-friends like this is also like a slightly different scenario <laughs> yeah yeah, that's why like you have to be careful with like also anthropomorphizing it um, but uh, <laughs> The rats didn't have to smuggle a giraffe. That's all I'm saying. No, yeah. I just, I'm just curious. I mean, I think you're right. I think the fact that they're looking inside the brain, it's not just like the rat, like, quick, look sad, look sad, so people don't think I'm a jerk. <laughs> like, yeah. um, I mean, because you don't want to be the rat who's like seeing the other trapped rat and then like 
that trapped rat sees you like smiling. Like, like you don't want to be the Schadenfreude rat. Nobody wants to be the Schadenfreude rat, right? Like that's the thing. Yeah, I just try to find like what defined the in-group. I know that there's like different types of rat that I use. I imagine like something like fur color, for example. Um, or they I, at one point I talked about Maybe like genetic similarity. So I mean, often the rats are genetically very similar to one another the way they breed them. Um, they just like put them in the same cage, yarm, when they were like baby rats, ratlings, yeah. pops. I want to say pops, rat pops, <laughs> rat pops. Um, so yeah. That's the, the the final fact for today. With that, I think we. So the the take home message is rats are jerks and we might be too. Yes, and that um, if we want to cr- increase cooperation, it might be a good idea to focus on um, a framing that says we belong to the same group, and not on a framing that says like, look, does this make you feel sad? Because we can feel sad about a lot of things, but we only act when we feel like our own group has to be protected. So we have to find ways of framing social interaction in a way of this is our own group that we're helping and not just like, oh, there's something that's bad in the world and we have to fix that because it's a feeling that we are good at ignoring. Um, Whereas if we say like, look, somebody of your family or your tribe or your extended group of people that you identify with is in distress, then we might be more um, inclined to help them. Okay, so there's this thing always when like reporting on on world news from a country's point of view, where there's like a, a horrific disaster, let's say like a um, I don't know, a typhoon or a tidal wave in a country, and like then they'll always be like, and you know, this many people were affected, you know, thousands of people were affected or hundreds died or whatever, and also two Australians like. And then some minor impact often, like maybe they died also, but like, you know, it was like this one Australian was affected and that used to always like quite bug me. Like I do realize that it's like for a local audience, it is relevant, like what the local people did, but it's less like you just like gloss over the thousands of people who were harmed and focus on like this one Australian. This is not like that, that Australian's life doesn't have more value because they're Australian. But like, basically what you're saying is that's the right way to do it. Because if you want people to donate like money or to actually act on feeling sad, saying like, look, this is also affecting your people could actually be a method. Yeah. In maybe it. Yeah, definitely. But I think it would be a similar mechanism. We're we're extrapolating way too much here, but (laughs) like, Maybe that kind of news reporting is not the worst. Who knew? <laughs> I mean, better would be to to drive home the point that also the other people are belonging to the same group of humans. And I know that's like harder to to frame that properly, but that would be the better solution. Well, that's, that's to- reestablishing. That's a whole new system. Whereas you've already got yeah. this like system of like that's an Australian and you're an Australian. Like that's already yeah. pre-established and like kind of easy. Yeah. I think that's that's related to that definitely. Um, we we are plant just another reminder that we're plant scientists, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we have no idea what we're talking about, but we find it curious. Yeah. We find it interesting. Um, if you want to correct what we're saying, uh, you can reach out to us on all of the social media. <laughs> um, there's plenty of opportunity on I Instagram guess. <laughs> and on like you can correct how we just did that outro on Instagram and on Facebook it's at Plants and Pipettes that's where you're talking to me on Twitter you can find me that's at Plants Pipettes and as Yoram said very soon we will have another podcast out where we talk about the book called The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Vorleben I did not care for it Yoram liked it a little bit more than me but we had some really nice interesting discussions um, 
So definitely do subscribe to the Plant Book Club if you want to. And if you- No, even if you don't want to, go and do that now. Yeah, go- That's your chore for the day. And then you can tick it off your to-do list and feel really accomplished. Yeah, we are your in-group and we are in distress because you're not <laughs> subscribed and you can help us by subscribing to the Plant Book Club. Uh, you can also learn more about and molecular <laughs> plant science by going to plantsandpipettes.com, our blog where we write about um, stories from the world of molecular plant biology. And I'm just sitting here imagining your arms stuck in a tube. Um, our opening and closing <laughs> oh music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs>